Welcome to Two Homes, your podcast about nature, sustainability and self-care. I'm Julia and I talk about love and how we can protect what we love. Today I talk to Darren from Project Jonah, a whale and dolphin rescue organization from New Zealand. We talk about strandings, about the emotional impact, as well as hard facts and data. We discuss the human impact on nature and the ocean in particular. We talk about living in a world of consumption and the power of rising awareness for change. Join in and listen to Darren sharing some touching stories he personally experienced while working for Project Jonah. Welcome, Darren, to my podcast, Two Homes. How are you? I'm very good, Julia. How are you? Yeah, thank you. I'm very excited for this interview. Really looking forward to it, and I absolutely appreciate your time. <laughs> so I'm going to start with a short little breathing exercise, as I do this every time in every episode, just to fully arrive in this moment and to release everything Yeah, what may be stuck a little bit in our bodies. So to all our listeners, if you can, close your eyes. Take a moment just to feel how are you today? Take a deep breath in. And out. Deep breath in. And out. And take another deep breath in. Hold. And breathe out. Let everything go what no longer serves you. Let your breathing flow naturally again. Feel how your belly or your chest maybe extend with every breathing. And then give yourself a little smile that you took the time to reconnect to yourself today. And if you're ready, open your eyes. Welcome back. <laughs> so, my first question, Darren. <laughs> The podcast is called Two Homes. And this first question is to all of my interview guests. And it's, what does home mean for you? Well, that's a, a very good question. I am... Well, I was originally born in England, and here I now live in New Zealand, halfway around the world. Um, and so having had a, a home growing up, and then when I became an adult, then choosing a separate place to make my home, you know, that means a lot that home is where you're going to choose to be and where you choose to put down your roots. Um, 
and having put my roots down here in New Zealand, I, I feel very nourished by this country, you know, with its amazing outdoors um, and, of course, our, our beautiful oceans and beautiful coastlines, which are, you know, it's it's such a very, very special place to be where you can still find a beach with, with nobody on it and, and almost have a beach for those brief moments to yourself. Um, I don't think there's many places in the world where you can get that. And not that I chose that reason to live here in New Zealand, but it's one of the... Uh, the very special things that means a lot to me to be uh, to be here and, and for this to be home. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So you are general manager of Project Jonah. First of all, tell us a little bit about the background and history of Project Jonah. What is Project Jonah and yeah, what is it known for? So Project Jonah is a marine mammal welfare organization. So we care for uh, marine mammals, that's whales, dolphins and seals, uh, in particular whales and dolphins. Um, we started way back in 1974 uh, here in New Zealand and for a while we were an international organisation. We do still focus our efforts on New Zealand, um, but we, we grew out of the movement of the late 1960s. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the inspiring books of the time was Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, where, where that was demonstrating the negative human impacts on, on our natural environments. And in the early 1970s, um, whaling, commercial whaling in particular, which had all but ended here in New Zealand in the late 1960s, in the early 1970s, it was believed the mineral oil that was uh, that was being uh, being mined and being drawn out of the ground was going to run out, um, and so commercial whaling was being talked about in the uh, in the media, and so people simply were were disgusted by this thought um, and got together and and formed a group, formed a campaigning group to campaign to the New Zealand government to take a stance to never restart commercial whaling. Um, you know, hearing stories of, of grandparents and great-grandparents, you know, three, four generations earlier where where we were seeing whales and dolphins close to our shores, you know, over and over and over, very, very commonly, and yet there they were in the early 1970s, not seeing, barely ever seeing whales or dolphins, you know, from our shores or even out on boats on the water. So. So having having that as our background, you know, these people were passionate enough to to make a stand and draw a line in the sand and say, no, we mustn't exploit these species, some of which were close to close to extinction. Mm. And so they campaigned and they fought for the rights of, of these animals as well. And New Zealand in 1978, as a result of these actions, we were one of the first countries in the world to put in place legal protections for, for all marine mammals. That's the uh, Marine Mammal Protection Act in 1978. And from there, you know, we were we, that, buoyed by that success. And I didn't play a part in Project Jonah then. This is, this is successes to me. And, you know, it's incredible people who made a stand. But from there, we, what whales and dolphins we were seeing, we were often seeing them stranded on our beaches, but no one knew what to do. Um, but a few people were, were experienced in working with these animals, quite ironically, uh, in captive shows. Uh, even here in New Zealand, we had a, a captive show area uh, in Napier. Um, but uh, from that experience, trying things with these live stranded animals, um, trying to return them to the ocean, assessing their health, seeing if they were, were able and, and you know, likely to survive being returned to the ocean, we developed our knowledge and developed our knowledge to a point where here we are today, um, you know, leading the way, uh, sharing knowledge overseas, sharing knowledge with people from overseas when they come and, and, and work with us here. 
and yeah, helping assess the health of these uh, stranded whales and hopefully return them to the ocean for many, many more years of a happy life. That's always been our goal. We do still campaign today, but there are other organisations who are who exist to campaign for the rights of marine mammals. Um, we talk about the um, World Wildlife Fund, uh, Greenpeace, Sea Shepherd, you know, just to name a few here in New Zealand, Forest and Bird as well, do tremendous job campaigning for the rights of marine mammals and to minimise human impacts, which still occur at, uh, at a massive rate. Um, yeah, so we focus, we fit into that slot of actually responding to strandings and the welfare of these animals when they do end up live stranded on our beaches mm. so this is a pretty incredible job you guys do and um, very grateful to be part of that too but we come to that a little bit later <laughs> so where does the name come from so the name comes from a passage in the bible uh, the story or the allegory of jonah and the whale um, and as I understand it, Jonah was, wasn't a very nice man and his friends, what he called his friends, you know, were, were, became more and more uh, irked off by his actions and his lying and his cheating, whether it's financially, whether it's other representations. But, but they, ultimately, they took him out for a fishing trip one day and they actually threw him overboard. They were so sick of him that they were prepared to do that to him. And, um, you know, treading water in the ocean, he's literally swallowed by a whale and he lives in the belly of a whale for three days and during those three days in the belly of a whale he begins to um, do a lot of navel gazing and think about his actions and think about why his friends would be driven to that kind of, that level of extreme intervention and three days later when he's coughed up by the whale he lands on on the ground he you know he's been given a second chance by the whale and i think thinking you know if if we think we are jonah and the whales gave us a chance, then it's on us to give these whales a chance in return. Mm -hmm. oh, that's beautiful. Um, yeah, so as I mentioned already, I did a few weeks ago the marine mammal medic training with you guys to learn how to rescue stranded whales. And with that, I'm, yeah, I'm part of Project Jonah and I'm very proud of that <laughs> and grateful. Mm -hmm. And yeah, for our listeners who probably have no idea yet what that is exactly, would you tell us a little bit more about the marine mammal medic training? So the training came out of the need to want to help these whales when they're stranded, whales and dolphins. And the knowledge that we started to develop, well, 35, almost 40 years ago now, That was formulated. Uh, we tried things and we repeated them and we saw what worked and we saw what didn't work. And we formulated that into, into some instructions and a manual and some knowledge. And formally here in New Zealand, we have been training members of the public, so volunteers, with the knowledge, the know-how, the skills, what to do if you find a stranded whale on the beach and some of the techniques that we can use to return these animals to the ocean. So. So we've run hundreds, um, almost possibly even thousands of training courses in those 30 years. In my time involved with Project Jonah, I've been, uh, I've run courses for over eight years now and I've trained well over a thousand people up and down the country because we cover the whole of New Zealand. And we've trained people from overseas um, and people have taken this knowledge overseas. We've also shared this knowledge with other organisations um, similar to ourselves that operate in other countries. And so there are thousands of people. We actually have in our database over 4,500 people that we've trained around the country who 
if we were to ask them to respond to a stranding in their region, then they've, they, we will invite them and there's a possibility that they could be invited to work hands-on with these wild, highly stressed animals out of their natural environment. And, and if there's no underlying reason for the stranding, whether that's a health or, or other injury, then, um, then, then the chance of returning them to the ocean to live those long lives. So that's, you know, that's the ultimate outcome from our marine mammal medic training. And, and after one day of training, yeah, you can elect to be on standby, ready to respond to a stranding in your region. Yeah, and and I think it's really good how the whole training is. Um, ah, now I don't find my words. <laughs> like I really like that it's practical and theoretical as well. So the combination of both is really good, I think. And you definitely learn a lot in one day, and it's out of my personal experience. Yeah, it's such a difference to really experience this whale full of water how heavy it is in the end and um, to sit in the water for just half a day and it's fun it's not a real situation in the end you know but still it's very full on <laughs> and to experience that with that training I think is very important to um, yeah to to get prepared for a real experience yeah the training is quite a lot of fun but it does have a very serious element to it and all the skills that you learn in the classroom in the morning are put into play in the as you say in the uh, in the practical in the afternoon and yeah. you're right we use a, a life-size life weight inflatable whale and inflatable dolphin and and while you know that could look like a lot of fun once people realize how heavy these animals are and how big they are yeah. because i can say to you something weighs two tons and it's four meters long and that's actually quite hard to imagine but once you put it rolling around in the breaking waves on a beach mm -hmm. and then that has a lot of weight and it's quite dangerous and so very quickly people realize oh this while it's fun this is this is serious yeah. and and that's where i think what what is reinforced by doing the practical exercise is that it is a uh, it, it is a potentially dangerous situation to be in but it's also it is serious and it is it can be the difference between life and death for this this stranded animal mm -hmm. absolutely yeah so you have been in many strandings already do you have any idea how many roughly um, I know it's more than 20. Um, I can't think of how many more it would be than 20. It just, it starts to become a blur and I've never, I've never written down every single one I've mm -hmm. been on the ground at. And I've, I've helped at many more remotely. Um, quite often we can give advice to people you know, without having to, to rush halfway across the country to attend whether, and, and whether I'm assisting with our trained medics on the ground, members of the public, or whether I'm helping other agencies, um, helping them, giving them advice, you know, assessing the health of an animal by looking at photos that have been sent across. So, you know, I, I can help at a stranding without actually having to be there working, you know, within touching distance of the animals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, but if you are at a stranding by yourself and you're kind of hands-on, what were your personal experiences with that? How did you feel? Oh, there's probably two that stick that come to mind. Um, one was um, was two humpback whales that stranded in the Northland of New Zealand, and one of the whales died um, within a few hours of the stranding being discovered. But the other animal lived for a further two days, um, and this was a 12 meter long humpback whale, 
And despite all the efforts of hundreds of volunteers and looking after the animal, meeting its immediate needs, and you know, we re-landscape using two large earth-moving diggers. We we changed the shape. We dug a channel for the whale to swim out of. There was enough water there for the whale to swim out of. But um, watching that whale and seeing how determined it was just to stay by the side of the other whale that had died, you could mm-hmm. see that it was it was likely you know it was it was mourning the death of possibly you know a member of its family. So it wasn't going to swim away. It was there to be by the side of it. And you could see, you could almost feel the mood of the animal and that it didn't want to, it didn't want to swim away. You know, we gave it every opportunity. We worked, you know, it was incredible effort from everybody at that stranding. Two whole days of of trying and giving this animal the opportunity to swim. And in the end, that whale, that whale died. Um, And it was, it was very, very sad to be around. And so I'm having experienced, you know, situations like that and then having experienced situations where hundreds of whales forming one big pod or almost like a village of individuals have all stranded they've all stranded together you know what we call a mass stranding having experienced that having seen that knowing that if you were to put your efforts into refloating one of the whales that one whale isn't going to swim away because the rest of its family the rest of its village is still stranded on the beach so it's simply going to turn around and return to those other members of its family who are highly stressed. So we've armed with the knowledge and the experience now of, of having been through this, um, knowing that, that you will only be successful with a mass stranding is if you refloat all of those whales at the same time so that they can swim off together in one big socially cohesive group. You know, they need to check in with each other. They need to be able to communicate with each other. They need to know that everybody's around. And if one's missing, they might think it's still on the beach and turn around and and return to the beach and then the whole mass stranding occurs again so it's you know seeing what happens with these animals and realizing actually quite how intelligent they are and how you know those those social bonds play out during a mass stranding it's it's quite incredible and it's quite touching being around these animals during their times where they're struggling and highly stressed Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah um sure it's just so emotional i mean i've never experienced it myself and i'm kind of hoping i will never have to because that means um yeah hopefully less whales get stranded um but i'm sure it can be so rewarding if the whales can be rescued but as you say it's also very exhausting and it takes a lot of physical and mental effort and obviously sometimes a whale can't get rescued and it is quite hard to deal with that so um what do you recommend to people during this training and also afterwards to deal with the emotional stresses of the event? I think during the stranding, um, concentrate on doing. So if you're given instructions on what to do, you know how to look after the animals, then concentrate on doing and doing it in the best way possible. Because by doing it the best way, then we don't increase our our potentially negative impact or make these animals even more stressed we're able to we're able to help them we're able to help them calm down and relieve their stress and give them a better chance of survival um, i don't recommend that people name a whale if they are working close to a whale because if that whale does subsequently die then you know they there's a stronger bond between the person and the animal you know it's like a it's like a pet 
you know, if, if anybody who's lost a pet, you know, will know how emotionally painful that can be. And even even after bonding just with a few hours with a with a marine mammal, it can, you know, it can still be, you know, a lot, you know, a deep emotional pain. And if you do attend a stranding and it is painful, it is emotionally painful, then talk to people, you know, uh, talk to your friends, you know, ask if you can talk it out, ask if you can explain how you're feeling and why you might be feeling it. And, you know, if, if you've been to a stranding and we were involved, then you're always welcome to call Project Jonah. We know what the feelings are. And, and while, you know, it does get a little bit easier having experienced it over and over, we now know how to avoid perhaps the emotions getting getting into us so strongly but but we're more than happy to talk it through with people you know i never ever recommend that people might bottle up feelings or just ignore them that's the worst thing that anybody could possibly do so yeah talk to friends talk to those around you explain to them how you how how you felt at the time and how you felt it was you know it's been upsetting the, the the flip side of that coin is of course if you are at a stranding and you do successfully refloat whales and see them swimming off and uh, and they don't subsequently reappear on another beach in the next few days it is incredibly uplifting it's the most amazing feeling and and i've met people who may have been in a stranding 50 years earlier when they were when they were just a child you know four or five years old and the details and the feelings and emotions that they're able to recollect from something that happened in their lives 50 years before is quite incredible so you know a stranding will be emotional for both good reasons and bad reasons depending on what happens at the event yeah totally and one point i want to add you mentioned in the training was like to rotate um the whale you work on if it's a mess stranding that you're not like that you don't even have the time to bond that deeply and I found that quite interesting that if there are more people around maybe change um, yeah the things you do that you don't deeply bond with that whale exactly that's right and that's to look after ourselves you know the whale mm -hmm. the whale isn't as likely to bond bond with us as we are to them you know we're 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 creatures who we're we're able to anthropomorphize uh, onto other animals very very easily and put human emotions onto behaviors that we see and so you know that can help us that helps us socially as animals but at the same time you know it's a weakness in us that when we are at an event you know a highly emotional event like a stranding that it can work against us so just be aware um of of that perhaps creeping up on you if you are at a stranding yeah so coming from the emotional side of a stranding do you have any facts and data about whale strandings in new zealand for us oh wow um so new zealand has on average 300 individual whales stranding uh, across our country so that's almost one a day on average, but that average, you know, isn't isn't the same every year. In February 2017, at an area called Golden Bay, we had over 650 pilot whales strand over the course of five days. So any averages that you're trying to work out can be skewed by one incidence like that. But it's the pilot whales that are the most common stranding species uh, on our shores. These, are, these animals are four to five meters long and they do live in these big pods. Um, a small pod of pilot whales is anything from 20 to 50 whales. And they have really tight uh, social bonds, uh, these pods that they live in. And it only takes one or two of these animals to 
get into distress and ultimately strand and the rest will stay with them the safety and numbers instinct that we see in a lot of uh, herding mammals that kicks in and so that sees these animals strand en masse um, and, you know, other than that we've seen um, almost half of the world's species visit New Zealand's you know waters or call New Zealand home and so that's 44 species of whales and dolphins have, you know, are on record as being here in New Zealand. So a fact we're pretty proud of. We live and we're based in central Auckland. And I was just looking at the, uh, the statistics. And there are, there are more than 15 different species of whales and dolphins that, um, that, that visit close to the shore of, of Auckland, you know, our biggest city. And so I don't think a lot of people realise that we can be living in a big metropolitan city and yet, you know, within an hour... Uh, offshore in a boat that there could be so many different species living close by yeah that's definitely one point i love about new zealand (laughs) (laughs) Um, so probably one of the most asked questions you get is what is the reason for whale strandings So would you tell us more about that? (laughs) Certainly, yes. Um, Well, you're laughing because you've heard what we say in the classroom. Um, We've we've got it down to about maybe 14, 15 different reasons. um, And often it's a combination of three or four or five different factors. Um, Sometimes we see dolphins strand just by chasing their prey into the shallows, up onto the beach, or they could be fleeing a predator. They literally swim out into the shallows and end up running aground and stranding just to flee from a larger predator. Um, But some of the factors that do lead to strandings are, you know, illness or disease, um, also injury. These animals can become injured. You know, if they get caught in fishing nets, they can be injured or struck by ships or boats. So our our largest species, if we consider the sperm whales, the humpback whales, or even the blue whales, they are susceptible to being struck by ships, um, the humpbacks in particular, because they they spend a lot of time on the surface. Um, And then, you know, I mentioned the social cohesion from those large... uh, family pods you know one stranding can lead to others being called onto the beach and of course you know, all animals will die of old age um, it's often the case where a very old animal is struggling to swim struggling to surface to breathe air because that's the kind of the the built-in disadvantage with a marine mammal is that it still needs to surface to breathe air unlike a shark or a fish and so If an animal is old and tired and physically exhausted, they may swim and strand on the beach so they don't struggle to take their last few breaths before they die. Um, and as I say, you know, these, these, these include a combination of weather fronts, which could can cause sea conditions and they can, they can maybe, you know, whilst dolphins might try and swim around an area of weather and be pushed closer to shore. And if there are deep ocean living species who aren't familiar with coastal tides, coastal waters shallow waters they can easily run aground or you know become stranded uh, on our shores just because they're not familiar with their coastal environment um you know, and then there are of course there's the human there are human elements as well you know they can they can flee from loud noises so if we think about um, expansion on our on our coastlines if, if we're hammering piles into the ground to build then uh, hammering of piles can cause a lot of noise uh, similar to you know in the same way that seismic surveying can cause a lot of noise. And this could cause whales and dolphins to flee from an area. And if they flee what they think may be a, a large predator, again, they could flee and end up being caught in a, in a very shallow area at high tide, that tide can turn. And they could be, you know, they could end up stranding just as a result of 
their response to their environment. You know, that environmental impact is a direct cause from us. Um, likewise, fishing, and you know, it's been seen overseas that military operations can um, can cause these animals again to flee or even to become damaged, you know, physically damaged as a result of the high intensity noises that are being made during military operations. Um, whales have been seen overseas to be malnourished, and sometimes that malnourishment can be caused from them um, ingesting waste in the oceans, in particular plastics. And there are some, some high profile cases of whales having their stomachs completely blocked, full of plastic that they've ingested in the oceans. There's of necropsies that have been performed in New Zealand in the last few years. There's very little, if any, evidence of plastics being ingested in the whales and dolphins that we've seen in New Zealand. However, you know, this is definitely something that we need to, uh, we need to be considering uh, as a, a potential reason for a stranding because, you know, I think there was data that was published uh, very, very recently saying that there are now more man-made things in the world than the entire biomass of the planet. So, you know, we make an incredible array of, of, of things, um, but there's not much that we make uh, that's built to last. And so when things do, you know, become useless to us, what do we do with them? And sadly, so much waste does end up in the oceans now that it, it can easily be ingested by our marine mammals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and about two years ago, there was a whale stranded with six kilograms of plastic in his stomach, including 25 plastic bags, 15 plastic cups, two flip-flops and thousands of other plastic parts. And it's just ridiculous. It's it's so sad. And yeah, I get really angry if I hear something like that. Um yeah, so what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's it's an unintended action of of the consumerism that we we find ourselves in, you know, we are we live in this consumption age where we buy something and we use it and we don't think about what happens to it at the end of its life. And we put it in a bin or we throw it away, but where is away? Where does away go? You know, all these items have to go somewhere. Um mm. And we don't know for sure that the people taking our rubbish away, where it goes, for sure. We, we, we genuinely do not know. And so, you know, sadly, it does end up in our ocean. You know, our oceans make up um, around 70% of the entire Earth's surface. Um, and so, you know, items like plastics can take hundreds of years to break down. You know, so, so every piece of plastic that's been manufactured by humans, if it hasn't been burnt, then it still exists in some way, shape or form. And so it's going to persist in our environment. Yeah. And now, you know, recent studies have seen it's not just those physically large items that are affecting marine species, but it's also as these pieces of plastic break down into microplastics, they are actually being absorbed into the bodies of, of creatures, including humans. And we don't know yet what sort of disruption that might cause to our to, to the way our organs function, um, and not just humans, but all animals. You know, there's there's potentially there's going to be you know future health problems for all animals as a direct result of us using mineral oils to create these easy to use simple solution items that we use for potentially minutes potentially hours or days or even a few years but then they ultimately get thrown away and replaced and so I guess you know how do we how do we break that cycle? How do we ensure the items that we purchase won't persist in a negative way for generations to come? 
won't persist in the marine environment and be consumed by a marine mammal, for instance. And so I, I, I think that's one of the biggest actions we can take as individuals is to consider what it is we're purchasing. Is it something that's well made? Is it something that can potentially be broken down and recycled at the end of its life? Or is it something, you know, I'm, I'm actually sitting here and, and we sell um, honey wraps, which are food wraps, which replace the plastic wrap that a lot of people use mindlessly to, to preserve their food. And the honey wraps are made of organic cotton. And so, you know, I know that you can put organic cotton into a, into a worm farm at the end of its life and the worms will turn it back into soil. So, I know that they don't do that with with food wrap and plastic. So straight away, there's one differential that we can make a decision or a choice in our lives, in our daily lives, to potentially minimise our impact on the environment. And so if we can consider our actions and other actions that we can possibly take as well, and we can then have, whether it's a direct or an indirect effect on our environments it's a positive effect rather than a negative effect yeah absolutely mm, yeah <laughs> so <laughs> yeah it, it can yeah. be it can be depressing can't it it can be depressing yeah, thinking yeah. about how, how we live and how we live and we get into these patterns and we get into these habits and mm -hmm. it's very very simple um, it took me a very very long time to stop getting a takeaway coffee And while I do have a keep cup, you know, my keep cup is still mm -hmm. made of plastic. Um, and mm. so I actually now choose to take 10 minutes to have my coffee in the cafe if I'm yeah. having a coffee outside. Just take 10 minutes and stop and drink the yeah, coffee okay. and drink it from a china cup that's going to be reused 100 or 200 times. Yeah. And yeah. again, it's a small action, which actually is a very nice thing to do to just stop and enjoy the coffee. You don't have to have the coffee while you're still driving or while you're still walking, while you're still doing something else. Just, just, and I, I think that's also um, one of the problems with our society is it has become fast. We've become very fast. And I think lockdowns, not just here in New Zealand, but around the world have actually shown us that we can slow down and we can still live our lives. And actually taking a time to slow down, taking a moment to sit down with a cup of coffee and enjoy the cup of coffee as it is not to just mm -hmm. rush to the next thing. And so I just ask anyone to consider that moment. You know, if, if you're meditating and your mind does wander, then wander towards what are the things you'd like to see? You know, let's, let's think about the, the potential. What one thing can we do to have a, either a less negative or even turn that negative into a positive in our, in our lifestyles of consumption that we, we find ourselves hooked into? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's... I mean, we're doing something good for nature and environment, but as well for us. And if we think one step further, we are nature. We're not separated from it. That's just this human thinking. Oh, that's <laughs> um, right. right. We are part of the yeah. entire web of life, yeah. aren't we? Totally. Yeah. So um, coming back to the marine mammal medic training, <laughs> I hope, mm -hmm. obviously, everyone who listens to this podcast is going to check your website and book in the next training. <laughs> um, but for those people who don't have any experience in whale rescue and they're on a beach walk and there will be a whale, so what would you recommend to do? The very first thing I'd like anyone to do if they find a stranded whale or dolphin is to phone for help. 
um, you know, whether it doesn't matter where you are in the world, phone the emergency services if you don't know who to phone. And then the emergency services will hopefully either take your details and pass them to the correct organisation or they will pass you directly through on the phone. In New Zealand, you can phone Project Jonah. Um, our number is 0800 4 whale And we have a 24-hour hotline which we can give you advice and the next steps of things to do. Otherwise, you can also phone the Department of Conservation um, and their phone number is 0800-DOC-HOT. Um, and again, they will take details and they will, uh, you know, like us, we'll, as soon as we get your details uh, and when we finish speaking to you, we will talk to Doc as well and we will coordinate a response. And so what you can then do is you'll be given the advice on the first steps of what to do and know that help is coming. Because the last thing we want you to do is to be stuck on a beach and not knowing when the next person is going to come along next the next person is going to be able to come along and help and give you advice on what to do so always call for help first but the advice that we would give to people is simply to keep these animals cool and that's cool by pouring seawater on them you know they they live in the cool ocean and um, one of the reasons they were hunted commercially was for uh, the oil that exists in their blubber and their blubber is a thick layer of fat that's just under the skin that surrounds their body and when they're in the ocean that keeps their core body temperature their their essential organs their heart and kidneys and livers it keeps them at uh, the, the optimum temperature to operate but when these animals are out of the beach even on an overcast day but but strandings more often happen in the summer and the summers are much hotter and if the sun's beating down on this dark gray or even black skin these animals, um, the, the biggest threat to them in that moment is heat stroke or heat exhaustion, and that's from their organs overheating and shutting down. So if we can pour buckets of cool water over them, all over their body, keep their skin nice and shiny, that will prevent that heat stroke or heat exhaustion from occurring. Now, when you are pouring buckets of water over them, then all I want people to do is that, but also I want them to avoid pouring water down the blowhole. The blowhole is, a, is, is, if you're ever out on the water looking for whales or dolphins, you will hear them first because they surface and they breathe out and breathe in. And, and, and you will hear and you will know when an animal has breathed, whether, when it's opened its blowhole and breathed. Um, and then you can pour water in that area just for a few seconds after it's breathed. And so pouring water all over the animal's body, that is all I want people to do. And then yeah. you can do that until help arrives. There is no need to try and get the animal back in the water as quickly as possible. Because, you know, with a fish or with a shark, they're gonna drown if they're not able to swim through the water and have that water pass through their gills. But with these whales and dolphins, they breathe air. So there is no rush to get them back in the water. They can, most species can survive at least several hours out of the water, if not several days. And so, you know, while you're waiting for help, that is all I would want people to do. So there's no need to drag them. You particularly don't want to, to, to roll them. Never, never roll a whale or a dolphin and never drag them. Never drag them by the tail or try and drag them by the fins. Um, they are quite heavy, as you as you found out on the training, you know, with, yeah. the, with the imitation whale and dolphin. You know, they're mm -hmm. very heavy for their size. And so... I think the the instinctual response that you see from people is to try and drag them particularly small dolphins drag them by the tail and get them back in the water as quick as possible but mm -hmm. but there really is no need for that so phone for help and then pour water on them 
and don't pour water down the blowhole. So three things. If everybody knew that, if everybody knew that, then you know, our whales and dolphins that strand will have a much greater chance of survival and, and not being injured. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Thank you. So we imagine Project Jonah arrives and has its first whale floating rescue device with it. So how does this work exactly? And do you know how many whales have been rescued with that already? Ah, you're talking about our, our whale rescue pontoon kit, aren't you? Yes. So with the pontoons, that's something that our volunteers in the 1980s invented and we're very, very proud of. We've got um, we've got about 20 sets throughout New Zealand that I'm aware of, and there are sets that have been sent all around the world. Um, and these pontoons have rescued hundreds and hundreds of whales. Um, and what the pontoons allow us to do is one of two things. If we've got a single animal stranded, well, we can lift um, a five meter long whale that weighs two to four tons. We can lift that whale in our in calf deep water, so I'm talking maybe 10 to 12 inches deep, and we can take that whale out to deeper water. We can take it out past the breakers on the beach. We can attach the pontoon set with the whale in it to the side of a boat, and we can take it out a kilometer or even two kilometers offshore and then release that whale in deeper water. The other thing we can do is we can identify one of the leaders of a pod of whales that are stranded in a mass stranding, If we are able to identify that leader, we can put that leader into the pontoon set. We can refloat that whale first. We can take that whale out past the waves and out into calmer water. And then when we can refloat the rest of the pod, then that whale in the pontoon set, it, it acts like a magnet. It will be calling underwater to the rest of the whales in the pod, and they will be drawn towards that whale, that key whale. And two out of every three times that we've used that technique in Golden Bay, and that technique has been successful. So, as I say, that's one piece of equipment that uh, if you call us uh, for help, then it's likely that we'll be able to bring that equipment with us and have that ready to go for uh, for if it's needed to help refloat the animal that you've discovered. Mm. That's really cool. And I really, really like the device. (laughs) And I'm sure a lot of the whales too. (laughs) So when you're not right at the whale stranding or you're on the phone to help at the whale stranding, what else does Project Jonah do? So yeah, so when we're not dealing with strandings uh, and we're not doing podcasts of people that are interested in uh, in what we're doing, so so I call that raising. So talk, talking to you and talking to your audience, I call that raising awareness. So um, you know, I mentioned before that we do campaigning, and recently uh, the New Zealand government has opened for submissions up until the end of November for. Um, for what people think about uh, the future of plastics. And that goes back to our conversation earlier. So we shared that information yeah. through our newsletter and through our Facebook uh, page. And we actually provided answers for people if they were, were keen to reply, because it was actually quite a complicated survey. So we provided people with answers. So that's that's something we're doing. We're look at, looking at ways to better improve the oceans for our marine mammals and, and sometimes to improve the protections that we have around the uh, the world for them. Um, but also education plays a huge part of what we do. Um, you know, we, we with our volunteers and, and our staff here, we will often talk to people, whether that is, um, you know, people in our classes learning to become marine mammal medics or whether that is going to schools and colleges or working with universities and sharing our knowledge to students, to children. I find 
talking to schools and talking to children is is vitally important because it empowers future generations with the knowledge to to make decisions uh, and to also understand the impact of their actions. Um, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but but they have the opportunity to learn from our older generation's mistakes. And while we're not we're not telling them what to do, but we can show them what doesn't work, and then they can consider what might work. And we can also open up, you know, give them the knowledge. You know, standing in front of a group of children and you watch them with fascination as you tell them about whales and dolphins and soaking up knowledge like little sponges. They're incredible. And and then hearing mm-hmm. stories from teachers two weeks later about the parents coming into school and saying, hey, my kids, they keep coming home. They keep telling me these stories about these whales and what we can do and, and why plastic is bad and how they don't want this in their lunchbox anymore. And so, so <laughs> you know, they, they're hearing and they're able to see the changes that they make you know the reasons for those changes and so you know if we are able to help people again introduce to them knowledge introduce to them uh you know the concepts of sustainability um and help them make those decisions then you know i i think you know that that's incredibly vital work which i i completely stand by it's something i'm very very proud of what we're doing Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's so incredibly important to teach the young generation, as you said. Um, so I'm very glad you do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah, like, as you said, you're obviously part of Project Jonah and you talked about volunteers. So who is Project Jonah in the end? Well, Project Jonah is Project Jonah. It's, you know, it's not me. Uh, I only work here and I work here for, you know, I've only worked here for nearly nine years now. And as, as I said earlier, you know, Project Jonah is is yeah. 46 years old this year. So, you know, Project Jonah is something that is, is made up of people. Um, there are two staff, so it's me and one other, Louisa. And between us, we ensure that we deliver everything that Project Jonah stands for. However, we can't do that alone, two people sat in an office in Auckland. And so it's volunteers who do an awful lot of our work, Um, whether that is volunteers responding to strandings in their region, or whether that's volunteers uh, helping with our our running the office, the paperwork, the administration, or whether that's volunteers helping us with graphic design, helping us with, um, you know, introducing us to research, or whether that's, you know, engaging with us in, in a way, shape or form with, with things that might be happening that, that raise concerns and, and sharing their passions as well. And so we are a, you know, Project Jonah is a collection of people of, of with similar ideals and similar goals all moving towards, you know, in, increasing the you know, a better outcome for marine mammals. Mm-hmm. So how can people join or support Project Jonah? Well, learn more about us, read about us, um, t- check out our, our website first and then see what's been happening recently and what work we've been doing. You can see that on our Facebook page. You can sign up for our newsletter as well and our newsletter will give you more information than our than our Facebook does. Then, of course, you've mentioned to people to come along and do the training. Now, the training we run during spring and mostly through autumn uh, and we run it around the country. So there may be a course in your region for you to, to sign up to. So I'd recommend doing that. Funny enough, doing the training is how I got involved with Project Jonah nine years ago. And so, you know, it's it's it is incredible. I can't speak highly enough of the training and knowing that when you finish the training that you really, really want to use your knowledge 
but at the same time using the knowledge that you've learned means that there's going to have to be a stranding you leave in two minds it's a, it's a little bit bittersweet but there will be future strandings and there will be the chance for you to use that knowledge in the future um, and so yeah so people can help us in, in a myriad of ways we are a charity so we do rely on the goodwill of uh, members of the public you know whether that is donations or whether that is a small regular monthly gift i can you know we'd be greatly received if anybody hears and is inspired by our work to uh to to pop along as i say to our website and if they're able to help us with a gift then that's incredible that helps us regular a small regular gift helps us plan for for the next events and uh plan for our future um so yeah so all of that's greatly received and if you do read our stories over a period of time you will see that we do stand by our vision and our mission to make the world a better place for marine mammals and to increase the protection and hope that they are here for future generations it's what we stand for mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so and i mean yeah christmas is coming up and you also have a shop so people can support you through that and maybe yeah make family and friends this year is a project jonah gift <laughs> and <laughs> of course, of course. um yeah <laughs> so what was your personal inspiration to work for project jonah why did you start working there when i was about 10 um so that was probably the, the early 1980s uh, i remember being in class in england you know i didn't live near the ocean um and and whales and dolphins weren't something that people ever talked about seeing and i remember one class the whole class was about whales and in particular i remember i can still see the image of the sperm whale on the projector screen and being told at the end of that lesson after being inspired by these amazingly charismatic creatures that by the time we're 30 years old these animals would be extinct But I'm so pleased that that teacher was wrong. And and ever since then, you know, even even in in the time in between until to, to when I started working at Project Jonah, you know, whales and dolphins, I was always drawn to them, you know, seeing their stories and, and hearing of them. You know, I was very, very lucky to visit uh, Canada, uh, Vancouver Island, and to, to spend some time seeing the, uh, the orca, the different pods of orca through that coastal region there and learning about those. And then, of course, coming to New Zealand and seeing the stories and seeing the regular reports and of the strandings and thinking, wait, this happens a lot. And so my background was in, in looking after people from a, from a risk perspective. So I would, while I was working in business, I was helping other organisations minimise the risk to their people. So when the role at Project Jonah came up, You know, I, I looked at it and I looked at the responding to strandings and, and training people with knowledge. And I thought, well, if I can be someone who I can look after people so that those people can look after whales. And so if I can keep people safe, safe people don't get injured because anyone who gets injured or tired or exhausted at a stranding, they become the priority. And so we have to divert our resources to look after sick or injured people from the whales. So if I can keep them safe and happy and unexhausted, then they can work better around the whales and give the whales a better chance of surviving. Mm 
Mm, beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Mm. I see a lot of similarities. Oh, good, good. <laughs> um, we're pretty much at the end almost. Mm. I have two last questions. According to Two Homes, the name of the podcast, as yes. home stands for the beautiful nature and ourselves as home. And it's what are your personal go-to tips when it comes to how to love and protect nature and how to love and protect ourselves? I think it's a, it's, it sounds like a cliche when it comes to nature. And that's, you know, if you're going somewhere, whether it's to the beach, whether it's into the bush, whether it's out on a boat, and it's to make sure that we don't leave anything permanently behind. You know, let's... When it comes to nature, there was nothing of us there beforehand. So let's make sure there's nothing left behind when we leave. You know, I think I think the saying is, you know, leave nothing but footprints. So, you know, I kind of I like to live by that. And so very mindful to think, you know, don't don't thoughtlessly put your rubbish in the car door and then you open the door and it's windy and oh, oh out goes your three or four pieces of plastic rubbish. And oh, there's, there it is on the beach and you see it going in the ocean. Oh, well, that works all undone. So. Be thoughtful when when we visit places, you know, and and even if it's wherever we go, let's be thoughtful about what we what we can do to to minimize our impact on it. And as for self, um, something that has really helped me, particularly, you know, it was very poignant the way you started this this course, and that's just checking it off this course. Sorry. Um, it was very poignant because I remember turning up at one stranding and the stranding had occurred the evening before. And so I had three or four hours of intense um, phone calls, booking flights, booking accommodation, maybe getting two or three hours sleep, being on the first plane, picking up the rental car, driving two hours, getting to the beach and thinking, right, it's 8.30 a.m. I now have 12 hours on my feet in front of me, pausing, stopping for 30 seconds to close my eyes and breathe and check in mm -hmm. and ground. And so for me, grounding is incredible. It's an incredible exercise to just think of the breathing, think of self and just to then, by having a firm and solid base, you can then step forward from that. And then something that I now look for is, I, I, I always try and find a chair wherever I go. I'll try and find a chair, so somewhere to sit down, because we can squat or we can lay on the ground or we can, you know, lean against something. But there is, for me, there's something about sitting on a chair, and it's almost like taking your med striking your meditation pose, but it's it's sitting down and grounding and just taking that mm -hmm. moment to retouch to your breath and reminding yourself. And by grounding, everything kind of just stops and solidifies, and I think then you can step off. It's a solid place to step off from. And for me, that's that's how I think about myself, is to not get caught up in the whirlpool of all the demands that, that these emergent, particularly at Strandings and particularly with work, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a national organisation with a huge remit, you know, the whole country is potentially our office. And for two people to manage that, it can become overwhelming. So remembering and to take that moment to form that mm -hmm. solid step to then step from i think that for me is 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 important really really important. yeah hmm. yeah absolutely thank you so much darren um yeah thank you so much it's a pleasure julia <laughs> yeah it was really cool it was very fun to 
uh, yeah, to talk to you, to have a chat and um, to spread the word, spread the message. Yeah, is there anything else you want to share or say before we finish the podcast? <laughs> I think we've, we've covered everything, else, yeah. everything off there, you know. <laughs> think about our actions, think about what we do and, and what might happen, you know, uh, what we buy. And, yeah, just, just consider that we play a part. We are a part of yeah. the entire system. It's not us and nature. We are nature. You said that earlier, and I, I truly believe in that. Mm -hmm. So we are part of, of everything. Perfect. That's the perfect sentence to finish this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and to all our listeners, spread the word. Um, go on the website of Project Jonah. Check out the course, the donation uh, button at <laughs> the shop. And yeah, just think of what you do. And yeah. Spread the message, share the word, <laughs> and enjoy your day. <laughs>